Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. In today's episode, we will explore international arbitration, which has become an indispensable tool for resolving cross-border conflicts, and it's gaining prominence in an increasingly interconnected world. From multinational corporations to sovereign states, parties are turning to arbitration to navigate complex legal issues in an efficient manner, and we're going to be discussing international arbitration from a practitioner's point of view. And to help with that discussion, I'm pleased to welcome Aurora Nico to the show. Aurora is an associate in Greenberg Traurig's Miami, Florida office. She has broad experience in the construction and infrastructure sectors, primarily in the United States, Latin America, and Asia. Aurora's practice focuses on the representation of owners and developers of large infrastructure and real estate projects in both transactional and dispute resolution capacities. She has many years of experience in international commercial and investor state arbitration matters, particularly in construction disputes. She has represented clients in tribunals around the world, including before the International Chamber of Commerce, the London Court of International Arbitration, the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, and the International Center for Dispute Resolution. Aurora, welcome to the show. Dave, thanks so much for having me on your program. I love this show. It's an honor to be here. Oh, thank you. And Aurora, you've had quite an interesting life and career spanning from Europe, South America to the United States. So tell us where you grew up and what made you want to become a lawyer. In short, I was raised partially in France, in Tokyo, Japan, and Lebanon in the Middle East, and went back to France for law school. By the way, in France, in the French system, you go straight from high school to law school. So went back to France for school, and I was lucky enough that I knew since day one what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to practice in international law. I didn't necessarily understand what it meant from a practical point of view, but at least theoretically, I knew that I wanted my focus would be international law. So Fast forward five years later, when I'm doing my master's in international law in, in Paris, I then knew that I wanted to practice in international arbitration and asked the director of my program what I should do if I wanted to pursue this career. He told me, you should go to Boston University, do your LM there, and take Rusty Park's classes. For everybody's background, Rusty Park is an American uh, superstar arbitrator who helped in the 70s, I would say, shape and is part of the people who have helped shape what international arbitration is today. So I did as told and went to BU, took all the classes that Rusty Park used to teach 
from there, I got licensed in New York and started practicing at a big firm in New York in U.S. litigation and international arbitration. Got it. What did you find in terms of the differences between, you know, practicing in France and or school in France and school and then practicing in the United States? Yeah, so France is a civil law system and switching from a civil law to a common law system can be a a bit challenging at the beginning, uh, especially as a student. But you get used to it. And after a couple of years of practice, I would say that in most cases, not always, of course, but in most cases, although the reasoning to get to a result under civil or common law are very, very different. In the end, the result is kind of the same. So a contract is a contract, a corporation is a corporation, a joint venture is a joint venture. Of course, there are many differences, but and the, the, it's mostly the reasoning to get there that's completely different. In, in a civil law, you are really used to, it's based on codification, on statutes, mostly, and the precedent system is not as important as in a, in a common law system. Got it. And then in terms of like legal education, what differences uh, did you find between legal education in France and legal education in the United States? Well, it's really hard to compare. First, because the cost is so different. And I hope everybody's seated because the highest I paid for law school in France was $500 per year. Wow. So you can't really compare. The first year we were 2,000 people in the same room. And then the filter is is year after year. So by the time you're doing your master's degree, you are 25 people in the room. So it's more, by then it's more similar to the US system where the classes are more interactive. But in terms of resources, it's obviously very, very different. The library at BU was incredible and sometimes had more material on French law that I ha- could have found in in law school in, in Paris. So it, it's really a different experience. And then, as I understand it, uh, your next stop was Columbia. Yeah. So from New York, I had this amazing opportunity to join a mega construction project in Colombia that was facing huge costs overruns and delays, and they were looking to file for arbitration. And the contract was subject to both New York and Colombian law. And I was in the process of getting, I was admitted in New York, but I was in the process of getting admitted in in Colombia because I I wanted to move there for personal reasons. That's where it, it was a perfect fit for me because I had this dual qualification and I wanted to keep practicing in international arbitration. So I joined the project where I was for five years and then decided it was time to move back to the U.S. And I have been in Miami for a couple of years now. And um, I've been at Greenberg for three years where I have been very fortunate to work with incredibly talented lawyers in, in international arbitration and, and construction. Excellent. And we'll get to... Uh talk more about the specific case that you had in Colombia, but wanted to talk about international arbitration generally. 
can you kind of give an overview of international arbitration and how um, it differs from typical arbitration or litigation in the United States? Sure. So there is two main types of international arbitration. One is commercial arbitration, and this is usually two private entities arbitrating their differences. And the other one is called investment arbitration or investment treaty arbitration. And this is usually a private entity suing a government and claiming that its investment in the host country has been spoliated. Although very different in nature and their origins are also very different, commercial arbitration was basically shaped by merchants a hundred years ago who were trading in cotton, coffee, diamonds, or whatever they were trading and decided that they were probably in the best position to judge their own disputes. And this is how arbitral centers emerged in, in Europe about a hundred years ago. Investment arbitration is mostly developed after Second World War when nations thought that if they were economically interrelated, they would be less likely to go at war against each other. So after Second World War, there is a significant amount of bilateral treaties signed between countries that pledge to protect other countries' investors when they invest in a, in a host country. So very different in nature, very different origins, but the proceedings are more or less similar. The way it works is also very similar to U.S. litigation. So you will have a request for arbitration that initially starts the, the proceedings and then the tribunal will be formed and there will be pleadings exchanged with witness statements and, and expert reports. And generally, it, it's similar to U.S. litigation but if you look closely, it's also very different, right? So the discovery is much more limited than in U.S. litigation. It's usually restricted to exchange of documents. There is typically no deposition in, in international arbitration. The rules of evidence are completely different. You don't object and get sustained or overruled as much as you can do in the in the US court system direct examination is almost inexistent in international arbitration because we consider that the written statement or report of that witness or expert is the direct examination of that witness or expert rules of procedure are very succinct because each arbitral center has its own rules and there's 20 to 30 pages long. So it gives the parties a lot of freedom to shape the proceedings the way they they want to. Interesting. And and so if I heard you right, I think you said uh, that there's not a lot of direct examination in arbitrations because most of the testimony is presented by written statement. So, I mean, it's interesting because typically you want to present your client uh, live. So the arbitrators or court or jury can get to know kind of your your witness, your clients. So how does that process work in international arbitration? Is there some sort of cross-examination 
of clients and witnesses during these arbitrations? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so maybe I, I wasn't clear. There is no direct, but cross is actually cross takes a much bigger importance because you have cross and you have redirect. But direct examination is is usually very short. It's, um, you know, hello, state your name. Uh, is this your report? Yes. And then you switch to cross and then you have the opportunity when you present a witness or an expert to question them on redirect. Got it. That makes sense. And then in terms of an arbitration panel, I think in the United States, you see either a single arbitrator or a, th- a panel of three how do arbitrators get selected in an international context? Yeah, so it's pretty much the same. On large cases, you will typically see three arbitrators on smaller matters, maybe one. It depends on what the parties agree to, but typically each party will appoint one arbitrator and then the party appointed arbitrators will appoint a chairman for the tribunal. And they will provide a declaration of impartiality and independence where they communicate relevant facts and information about the parties and and the matter and confirm that they have no impediment to act as an arbitrator on, on the matter. Got it. And then in terms of where do the arbitrators come from if it's an international, you know, arbitration, I, I think, you know, typically you see, you know, like for the AAA, for example, they'll give you a select number of people for, for you to look through. And typically they're all in the United States because that's, you know, for a domestic arbitration. For for an international arbitration, I, I'm assuming there's a bigger pool, folks from different countries. How, how does that process work? Right. So it's, again, dependent on what the parties have agreed to. You can select pretty much anybody who is qualified but you can there all there are also lists of arbitrators provided by the arbitral center the arbitrators come from everywhere really you want to obviously when you're arbitrating and i focus on construction related disputes so when you're arbitrating a construction dispute you want you want to appoint somebody who has enough experience in in this field but it would be applicable to M&A disputes or tech disputes, they come from really everywhere. Got it. And that makes sense. How does uh, the enforcement of international arbitration decisions work? Yeah, so you can enforce an arbitral award almost anywhere in the world. And the magic really happened in 1958 when the UN adopted what we call the New York Convention, which is a convention on recognition and enforcement of for foreign arbitral awards. And I think about 180 countries have ratified that convention. And what it does is that contracting parties have the obligation to enforce international arbitration awards in their territory and they have to give it the same value as a local judgment. And the U.S. is signatory to that? It is. And, and the grounds to object to a recognition of an award under the convention are pretty limited. So it's if there was no arbitration clause or there was no notice was given to the other side or the arbitrators judge the issue ultra virus, it's really you don't get de novo review typically. One last question kind of about 
international arbitration generally. I think for the most part, folks who practice arbitration sometimes feel that although the system is supposed to be more efficient than litigation, sometimes it's not. And I wonder if if you found kind of an international arbitration that it, it's it's more um, effective, more efficient than actually filing a lawsuit in court. So I guess it depends when you say litigation, <laughs> where. I do think that litigation is, sh- uh, sorry, international arbitration is shorter than court litigation. Maybe not so much in the U.S. because the court system in the U.S. works fairly quickly, but it's not necessarily the case outside the U.S. But when I went to school, let's say, how do I say this without revealing my age on a national program? But (laughs) let's say between 10 and 30 years ago, to keep it general, what we were taught in school is that international arbitration was cheaper, faster, confidential. And all of this is still true to a certain extent. It is still shorter than litigation in most places, much shorter than litigation in most places. It is still cheaper than U.S. litigation, for sure. And confidentiality is still applicable, of course, because you don't typically file things in a public record in international arbitration, but that's not always true, especially in, in investment arbitration, since they involve governments, many times the government has an obligation to publish pleadings and decisions. And also when it comes to enforcement of arbitral awards, uh, whether it's commercial or investment uh, arbitral awards, you might need to file the award in the public record. Well, let's turn to the specific arbitration that you had in Colombia. It sounded like a really interesting dispute. Um, t- tell us a little bit about the case uh, and what your role was in it. Okay. Yeah, I see you did your homework, Dave. So this was the project I worked on for five years in Colombia. It was a massive multi-billion dollar EPC, so engineering procurement and construction contract. And when I joined the company, they wanted to file for arbitration because the contractor was years late and billions of dollars outside budget. And there are many, many claims in that arbitration. But to make it simple, we were claiming for delays and and defective work against the contractor. Where did the arbitration take place and what law applied uh, to the arbitration? Yeah, so the seat of arbitration was New York and the contract, so the EPC contract was subject to both New York and Colombian law because most of engineering and procurement activities were carried out in out of Houston, Texas, and all the construction activities were obviously happening in in Colombia. So the construction part of the contract was subject to Colombian law and engineering and procurement activities were subject to New York law. So a lot of things going on there. So you were in-house at the construction company then? Right, correct. And did you 
like have to hire local counsel in in Colombia? How how did you figure out? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out from a litigator's point of view. How do you figure out what Colombia law is? I assume you you can't find that on Lexus. How how do you go about doing that? Right. Yeah. No. We were we were a big team. We had local counsel for Colombian law. We had U.S. counsel for the New York part of it. We also had experts in Colombian law because some of the claims were very complicated under Colombian law. And we had also a big team internally. So I was uh, head of, of arbitration for that company. And it was technically so complicated that we had to coordinate internally, not only the legal aspect, but also on the technical aspects uh, for all claims to be, to be substantiated. It lasted eight years, which is not typical at all for international arbitration. But so many things happened on this project and, and, and on this arbitration, to be quite honest. And then COVID happened, which even further delayed things, of course, but I think the most, one of the most challenging thing was to be able to juggle and reconcile the fact that the contract was both subject to New York and Colombian law. And sometimes it's hard to draw the line, right? If you have an engineering or a construction or a procurement claim. And there are simply things that don't exist under Colombian or New York law. So, for example, the contract carved out consequential damages. But for the example of loss of profit, for example, under Colombian law, loss of profit is considered direct damages, as long as you can prove them. So this is the type of things. And it also happens a lot, not on this particular project, but it also happens a lot with liquidated damages, because Liquidated damages in most US, U.S. jurisdiction, they won't be enforceable if they are considered a penalty. And under civil law, or at least under French and Colombian laws, which are the ones I, I know best, your liquidated damages clause is called penalty clause. So sometimes it can be really challenging to reconcile those, those concepts. But I've found that the tribunal, when in doubt, validated both options. They said, okay, we have this claim. Let's see what's the result under New York law. What's the result under Colombian law? And guess what? It's the same, which goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier. It's, it's not always, but many times the solution is the same. Got it. And, and tell us more about kind of what the result was of the arbitration. Well, amazing. Do you have a confetti option on, on a podcast? <laughs> Great result for, for my former company. The tribunal found that the contractor was liable for a billion dollars in delays and defects plus interest, which takes us to about $2 billion. They found that the contractor had acted in gross negligence and willful misconduct. So there was a lit, um, limitation of liability cap for seventy million dollars, which they found were was not applicable, was not enforceable. Sorry, because the contractor had acted in in gross negligence. Yeah, I mean that sounds like an amazing uh, result that you obtained. 
on behalf of your client. A good example of the process of international arbitration. We are coming to the end of our time together. Any last thoughts um, that you might have for our listeners about uh, the process of international arbitration? No, thank you so much again, Dave. When when can I come back? <laughs> I just hope that this made uh, international arbitration a, a bit more clear and, and interesting to your audience. Excellent. Well, Aurora Nico uh, from Greenberg Traurig, thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. Thank you, Dave. Thank you to Disco for sponsoring Litigation Radio. Disco makes the law work better for everyone with cutting-edge solutions that leverage AI, cloud computing, and data analytics to help legal professionals accelerate e-discovery and document review. Learn more at csdisco.com. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is the ABA Young Lawyers Division Speaker for the 2023-24 bar year. In this role, he serves as the Chief Policy and Legislative Officer overseeing the YLD Assembly. It's great to see you again, Daryl. Great to be here again, Dave. Thanks for having me. So I understand you're going to be giving us tips about the pitfalls of providing legal advice to family members. So what's your quick tip? Absolutely. As we approach the holidays, um, I really want to offer up these tips in regards of, of the potential risks that can be associated with giving family and friends legal advice. I was actually on the ABA's website, and this is really where this, this idea came from, and I want to give credit to the author of this particular article that I was reading in relation to giving family and friends tips as it relates to this issue. And it is Samuel Dangerman is the author of this particular article that I found on TYL that really started the idea for these tips. So the first thing that I want to offer up as you may be sitting around the Thanksgiving table or around the Christmas tree uh, for Christmas is that when your family and friends ask you for legal advice on particular issues that are legal in nature, you want to be very cognizant on, you know, how you provide that advice. The first thing that you want to be cognizant of is that this is the possibility of inadvertently creating an attorney-client relationship. When your family and friends ask you questions on legal advice, they're really asking you because you've gone to school for, you know, the law and to become a lawyer and, and, and or you may be practicing in a law firm. And so when they're asking you these questions, they may not really be thinking much of it, but they really want to get that sound advice. And while you may be offering it, you know, to kind of help, you want to be sure that you are letting your family and friends know very explicitly whether or not you are creating an attorney-client relationship by providing the legal advice. Because one thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to run afoul of Rule 1.1 of the ABA Model Rules of Professional Conduct. If the particular issue that you're providing advice on is outside of your wheelhouse or your area of expertise, if you find that the question that your family is asking, you want to uh, let them know, one, that you're not qualified to provide legal advice on that particular area because you may not be knowledgeable of that area. And if you're not, you want to let them know that you can find a uh, referral source for them and reach out to someone who may have better 
better knowledge in that particular area of law so that they can better advise your family and friend uh, because you don't want to run into a legal issue of potential malpractice, which takes me to my next tip is that if you do decide that you are going to provide legal advice on an area that you may not have a lot of expertise on, you have to know that if you're providing that, you have potentially created the attorney-client privilege relationship with your family or friend and that this person has relied on the advice that you gave them in order to move forward with their particular issue. So if you do that, you're potentially opening the doors for a malpractice lawsuit. You want to make sure that when you're providing this legal advice, one that you may also be following along with the model rules of professional conduct 1.18 and the duties that are related to it in relationship to a prospective client or a potential client. So when you're offering up this legal advice, you want to make sure that you're checking with your firm to see if you have an obligation to list the recipient of this advice as a potential or prospective client. Because if you do this, you want to make sure that you're you're covered in the information that you receive uh, from that particular person. Because if you provide out uh, advice on an outside issue or provide advice on an issue that is outside the scope of your job, you could open yourself up to personal liability for a, a malpractice suit because you've offered up advice that someone relied on and it didn't go the way that it should have, or if it was wrong advice and they relied on you, you could potentially be opening yourself up for a malpractice lawsuit. And if you haven't gone about the proper channels within your law firm to offer up that advice and to list this person as a prospective or potential client, you could be outside of the coverage that could be provided by the malpractice insurance that is covered by your employer. And so then you could potentially be opening yourself up for personal liabilities uh, if you do not carry you know, malpractice insurance on yourself that is outside of what's provided uh, by your employer. As we go into the the last tip that I have is really how do you respond when you're approached by your family or friends for uh, legal advice? The first thing that you want to do is if it is within your wheelhouse, you want to create a formal attorney, a client relationship. You want to do that by drafting up a representation letter and or contract for the family member or the friend to sign on behalf of the representation. Uh, you also want to be clear in that contract. You want to limit the scope to the particular issue that is at hand because you may be approached for additional questions that may be outside of the scope. And, and if, as you decide what you're offering the legal advice on, you want to make sure that you're very clear on what you're offering. You want to make sure that if this is just representation up through what may be a trial or a hearing, you want to do that. Or if you're deciding to handle an appeal, you want to make sure that the, all of this is very clear in the contract that you put together with your family and friend because you uh, do not want to run afoul of any issues where you're offering advice that may extend beyond the relationship that you wanted to established by the questions that may be posed to you. With that being said, you also want to make sure that if you're going to take on the legal representation that you're running it through the proper channels through your employer to ensure that you have gained the proper approval to represent a family or a friend. And lastly, if the question or the legal issue is one that is outside of your wheelhouse or your area of expertise, refer, 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 find a referral source for your friend or family for someone who can handle the issue for them and you not take it on and create some 
type of discomfort that may arise within the friend or family because you may have provided advice that was outside of your wheelhouse and was wrong. So as you prepare for the holidays, I want to make sure that you are equipped with tips and necessary tools to look at the risks that may be associated with giving family and friends legal advice on issues that you may or may not be well versed on. And those have been my tips for today. Great. Daryl, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscriven-young at pecklaw.com and connect with me on social at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, X, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting you in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the 2024 Environmental and Energy Mass Torts and Products Liability Litigation Committee's Joint Regional CLE Program in Avon, Colorado, taking place January 31st through February 2nd. Join us for eight plenary presentations on hot litigation topics, including committee-specific content, broader litigation interests and ethics, and in addition to an agenda of diverse educational sessions, there will be, of course, time to enjoy outdoor activities and networking with your colleagues. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org slash joint CLE. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify is super helpful as well. And finally, I'm going to quickly thank some folks who make the show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Haley Maple and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Next time.